before we start the episode, we have got a special and exciting announcement for you. I know that a lot of you have been waiting for this. Our New York City field trip registration is now open. The trip is on September 11th through 16th. It's a long weekend one. And I think you'll be surprised at how many of our former subjects we get to visit in a way. Go to likemindstravel.com to look at the itinerary. You'll see some familiar names there. Sagamore Hill, Delmonico's, Tiffany's. Did you know you could have tea at Tiffany's? I had no idea. Now you know. (laughs) I know. I'm so excited. Go to likemindstravel.com and look for the History Chicks field trip to New York to sign up. Welcome to the History Chicks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Two female musical child prodigies dazzled audiences across Europe, and both were put in the shadows of the talented men in their lives. But one of these women premiered just as the life of the other was ending. How would that time play into their life choices? In a word, differently. The end. Let's talk about Maria Anna Mozart and Clara Schumann. But let's start with Maria Anna Mozart and drop her into history. In 1751, for just one cent, you could see America's first performing monkey in New York City. The University of Pennsylvania held their first classes. Very popular composers of the time, Johann Sebastian Bach, had died one year earlier, and Friedrich Handel began to lose his eyesight. Future President James Madison was born, and in England, Frederick, Prince of Wales, died making his son, Prince George, the heir apparent. And in 1751, a musically gifted child prodigy with the last name of Mozart was born and she would dazzle audiences across Europe. The end. Maria Anna Valberga Ignazia Mozart was born on July 30th, 1751. The midnight clock was striking, so the actual date is different depending on what source you look at. She was the first of two surviving children of Leopold and Anna Maria Pertel Mozart. Papa Leopold was the eldest of nine children of a Bavarian bookbinder. Doesn't sound like a really lucrative position, but this family had some money. So because of that, Leopold was able to get a really good Jesuit education. Although while he learned all the basics, the reading, the writing, and the arithmetic, he was really drawn to music, specifically the violin, the piano, and the composition of music. But for his social class, Being a musician really wasn't a desirable field. It was a good hobby, a side gig, something to entertain your friends and family, but not a career. So despite his father having passed away and left the bookbinding business to the family, Leopold decided not to go into that. And instead, he went on to study law at Benedictine University in Salzburg, but was asked to leave within the first year for the eyebrow-raising reason that he was, quote, Unworthy of the name student. Leopold's mother, also named Maria Anna, seems to have thrown up her hands at this point and turned her back on her eldest. That tells me that this wasn't just the first incident where Leopold had acted against what she would have desired for her family. For his part, because Leopold no longer had familial obligations, he was able to pursue where his heart and his talents led him. That would be music. He stayed in Salzburg, took up his violin, and eventually became a court violinist when he was 24. 
This job paid a lot for his soul, but it didn't pay a lot for his bills. So he also took on music students to supplement his income. And at some point, Leopold met Anna Maria Pertel. And a lot of her history isn't known, but this is what is. She had not been raised with any wealth. Her father had been a government official and sent Gilgen, now part of Austria. But then, and we've talked about this on other episodes before, it was an independent municipality. But Anna Maria's father's health wasn't great. And he kind of had to keep taking steps downward, not only in the type of positions that he had, but also in the income. And he died when Anna Maria was just four years old. She was raised by her widowed mother, who took the family to Salzburg, lived off of pension provided by the government. They made lace on the side to supplement that pension. And really, they were just getting by. She had no formal education at all. She may have been illiterate or close to illiterate. While when Leopold and Anna Maria met is unclear, we do know that they were married in Salzburg at the ages of 28 and 27, respectively, and moved into a brand new building on the third floor, an apartment, a happy family of three. That's because Anna Maria came with her mother. They were a package deal. Over the next seven years, Anna Maria would lose five children with the first surviving child being Maria Anna, born in 1751, followed five years later by a son who was baptized, deep breath, Johann Christosomus Wolfgangus Theopolis Gottlieb Mozart, known to history as Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, which is much easier to say. Our girl, Maria Anna, let's talk about her name for a second. In a lot of sources, you're going to see her referred to as Nannerl, N-A-N-N-E-R-L, which I was going to call her because it's so exciting to get a different name until I saw an interview with a person from the Maria Anna Mozart Society who quickly asked the person interviewing her to not refer to Maria Anna as Nannerl because that's what the family called her as a child. It was just a family nickname. It would be like one of my children being called Wiki in his biographies later on after his death. So let's not go with Nanarel. And on her headstone, it says Mariana, which I thought was beautiful. And some sources do call her that. But I think I'm going to be a purist and call her Maria Anna, which is still pretty. Leopold was still playing violin for the court, still teaching. Now he was an author. He wrote a book about his favorite instrument, the violin. And when Mariana was seven, which was a little bit early, but when your dad's a musician and there's musicians coming in and out of your house all the time, you tend to pick it up early. And he wanted to teach her to play the piano. Now I say piano. He taught her to play the harpsichord first. Later on, it would be a forte piano. Uh, You see all the sources saying a piano, just generic. But that's what they played at the time. I'll link you up to a video that tells you the difference between a forte piano and a modern day piano. I'm not going to go into it here, but it was more significant than I thought. Maria Anna continued to learn music. She fell for it. She loved it. She could play for hours, even at the age of seven. So here's cute little toddler Wolfgang and seven-year-old Mariana. He's watching her. Let me just tell you a little story about my childhood. I'm a twin. And when uh, we were learning how to stand, I would stand and fall in the crib, stand and fall, stand and fall. And my brother just watched me until one day he just stood up and didn't fall. Same with walking. I would stand up and take a step and fall, take a step and fall. 
And my brother was just staring at me, watching me make mistakes, seeing how I corrected myself so that he could just stand up and walk across the room. No falling. This is what Wolfgang was doing with his sister, Maria Anna. He was watching her learn, watching her make mistakes and correct herself, listening to what their father was telling her to teach her, to guide her in the music. He was picking it all up. And kids' brains, you know, they're just sponges. There's a lot of debate out there about Maria Anna's influence on her brother. One camp says that he was just so musically gifted that, no, he did it all on his own. But a musical sociologist and anthropologist named Stephen Jackson says, quote, No musicians develop their art in a vacuum. Musicians learn by watching other musicians, by being an apprentice, formally or informally. Being in a musical family can heighten one's musical interest, expertise, and musical drive. While the average age to start to learn to play at this time was 8 or 10, Wolfgang started much earlier, about the age of five. And science says that that might have been one of the keys to his genius. As far as brain development goes, learning music that early will differentiate the brain not only from non-musicians, but from musicians who learned later. So by teaching him at such a young age, they may have been reconfiguring and hardwiring his brain to play music in a way that no one had before. We can add another job onto their father's resume. They were taught by him at home to read and write, to do some arithmetic. He would have thrown in a little bit of history and some geography that was important in their world. And with all those musicians and artists coming through their house all the time, they certainly picked up an education from them. The two children played for audiences of musicians and family friends and began to play around the salons of Salzburg. When Mariana was 10 and Wolfgang was just six, they decided to put the children on the stage, not Leopold as a musician, the children as headliners. And not just anywhere, they were going to travel to Munich and play for the then ruler, Elector Maximilian III, It was a three-week trip, and it was such a success. The kids were fantastic. The reviews were amazing. And Papa's money pouch came back very heavy. So he's an educator. He's a musician. He's an author. He's a very active networker. And now, tour manager. In 1762, when Maria Anna was 11 and Wolfgang was just seven, so about a year after the Munich trip, Papa Leopold lined up some very serious gigs, piled the whole family into a carriage, and headed about 180 miles west to Vienna, where they played for, no less, than the Holy Roman Empress Maria Theresa, yes, we will be covering her, promise, 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 and her husband, Emperor Franz Joseph. Maria Theresa and her husband had 13 living children, 13 And the youngest five were about the same age as Maria Anna and Wolfgang, including a young wild child who we've talked about before, Maria Antonia, who history knows as Queen Marie Antoinette. Legend tells this story. The Mozart's children were playing for the Empress and Emperor, and Wolfgang went up to present himself to Empress Maria Theresa. And he tripped, fell on the floor, and little Maria Antonio raced over and helped him stand up again. And he looked at her with dreamy eyes and said, you are good. I will marry you. 
(laughs) Then he continued to climb up onto the empress's lap and give her kisses, and she loved it. The empress sent them gifts, and they were paid handsomely. Not only were they playing for the court, but they were playing in homes and halls. Leopold, like I said, was a master networker, and if he had a lead, he would follow it until his children were on a stage being watched by nobility. And Leopold was making more money than he ever could have imagined. When there's a stage with two child prodigies on it, one is going to stand out just because of their character, and that was young Wolfgang. He was tiny, and he was animated. He was obviously musically gifted. He was not, at this point, as skilled as his sister, but audiences just couldn't get enough of him. He was so charming. But the reviews from Maria Anna were amazing. They were fantastic. People really appreciated her level of skill and artistry at such a young age. Recapping one of the concerts, someone had called her masterly. But the two were entertainment, and they showed a little razzle-dazzle by playing together on the same keyboard and then having a cloth put over their hands so they could play without seeing their fingers, which... You know, if you ever learned touch typing back in the 80s, like I did, they put paper over your hand so you couldn't look down at your keyboard. To these kids, it was just an exercise that their father had been making them do forever. But to audiences, it was magical and fascinating and clap, clap, clap. After their time in Vienna, the family returned home to Salzburg and Leopold knew that his gifted children would bankroll the family for years. He's kind of been planning their tours by the seat of his pants up until this point. But now he knows a guy in Munich who knows another guy and more in Vienna. And do you know someone in Paris? How about London? And about a year later, after more practice for the kids, after more planning on Leopold's part, he's loaded down with letters of introduction and contacts in every city and every court across Europe. And he's contacting those people ahead of time to get excitement building. So now he's a publicist, too. Like anyone who's been a kid on a road trip with their siblings knows, games are life. Games are essential. And Maria, Anna, and Wolfgang, they invented a storytelling game set in an imaginary land called the Kingdom of Back. Wolfgang was the king. Mariana was a queen. They talked about their great adventures. They made drawings and revisited and kept continuing the story all throughout their trip. Their first stop was again Munich. From Munich, they headed to Leopold's hometown, where at least one of his many siblings, who did take over the family bookbinding business, was happy to see him. His mother, who was still alive, didn't bother to come to any of the concerts that they played in the town. She didn't contact them to see her grandchildren or her son or anything. And she missed out big time. This was published as a review of one of their performances. Imagine an 11-year-old girl who can complete the most difficult sonatas and concertos of the greatest masters on the clavecin, which is a harpsichord, or the grand piano, with the utmost clarity, with almost unbelievable ease, and play them to the best of taste. That must astonish many people. Leopold was very proud of his children. He was also, you know, a pretty good publicist, and he may have been laying it on just a little bit thick when he wrote to a friend, and remember, in Leopold's world, 
friend equals networking opportunity. Quote, my little girl plays the most difficult works which we have with incredible precision and so excellently. What it amounts to is this, that my little girl, although she's just 12 years old, is one of the most skillful players in Europe. And yeah, Papa was bragging and he was trying to book more performances, but it was true. Other people not related to the family were making these same kind of comments. This tour continues for about three years. It goes from one court to another. Frankfurt to Paris, where they had a very pricey five-month stay. There, they played in the court of King Louis XV. That would be our former subject, Madame Pompadour's Louis. And although she was in the last year of life, she was present at one of the performances. Unfortunately, both Leopold and Wolfgang weren't too impressed. Leopold thought that she had unearned airs of an empress. And little Wolfgang, he was shocked that Madame Pompadour would not let him kiss her or sit on her lap like an actual empress had done in Vienna. However, when the Mozart children played for royal blood family, we're not talking former mistress like Madame Pompadour was, the daughters of the king bestowed many kisses upon the lad, totally made up for what Madame Pompadour didn't give him. And there was some sightseeing. They toured Versailles. And Leopold, still homeschool father, made a lesson out of it, teaching the kids about Roman mythology through the statues that were around the grounds. And it made such an impact on Maria Anna that she wrote of it in her diary. She also, I should mention, kept what was called a music book. She had several in her lifetime. In it, there was the pieces that she was learning to play, little notes from her or her brother as he got a little bit older, new compositions, mostly from her brother, possibly herself. There's so much debate about what compositions she may have contributed to. We do know that Wolfgang talked to her about his compositions all the time. And because she was experienced in the same thing that he was, her giving him feedback was definitely not out of the question. After Paris, the family headed on to London and had their first sighting of an ocean. They did get a little seasick on the crossing from Calais to Dover. But if you get seasick, once you get on dry land, you're fine. And they were too. And within just a couple days, they were playing at court. Whose court, do you ask? Why, former subject, Queen Charlotte and her husband, King George III. It was very early in their marriage. Charlotte had only given birth to two of her children. Here in London, which they at first liked a great deal, the Mozarts, just like Queen Charlotte, learned English. They played more public and private events. They were billed as prodigies of nature. Gifts and gobs of money started coming their way. And Wolfgang was stepping more to center stage. He was beginning to play some of his own early compositions. And people like to put him and his sister through tricks. But at this point, he's the one that's doing a lot of them. I mean, things like, again, the covering of the hands or sight reading of complex compositions. And my favorite, hey, Wolfgang, what's the pitch of this clock chime? So that kind of thing. And he, and he totally played along with it. They were in London for almost a year and a half. And not all that time was successful. London, as we've talked about before, clears out in the summer. 
and Leopold developed some sort of serious infection, an illness that required the children to be still and silent and not run around. But the silver lining of that? Wolfgang composed his very first symphony with Maria Anna as his scribe. She may have contributed, you know, in just commentary, and even she may not have realized what she was doing, but she said of the experience later, while he composed and I copied, he said to me, remind me to give something good to the horns. But at this point, because the money wasn't flowing in as fast, the family had to move down to less expensive lodging in the country. Okay, now the country is Chelsea in London, but then country They resumed playing publicly, but far less posh venues. Uh, At one point, they lived in some rooms over a pub and played there. It was time to cut their losses and move on. First to Holland. This is when it was Mariana's time to get sick, and she was so ill that she received last rites. And just like when I was a kid and one of my brothers came home with chicken pox and my mom put us all in the same bed— Wolfgang also caught it. In Maria Anna's diaries, she and her brother are referred to in the third person. So this was one of the things that she had written that just totally says siblings to me. When she had recovered from her very grave illness, the son fell sick of a quite grave illness. (laughs) They began to work their way home, stopping on their way, of course, to play Paris again. They saw some friends who they hadn't seen in a very long time who said, Mademoiselle Mozart, now 13 years of age and moreover grown much prettier, has the most beautiful and most brilliant execution of the harpsichord. And of Wolfgang, he said, her brother alone is capable of robbing her of supremacy. He's at her heels now as far as talent goes, but she still has it and it's still being recognized at the ripe old age of 13. When they finally made their way back to Salzburg, when they had left three years earlier, they were virtually unknown, and now they were famous in the courts of Europe, and they were welcomed back to Salzburg as stars. Today's sponsor, Honeylove, has revolutionized the bra game. Say goodbye to underwire and bulky fabrics that trap heat. Honey Love's bra features supportive bonding that eliminates the need for underwire without sacrificing lift. You'll immediately feel and see the difference. It's so next level comfortable, you'll forget you're wearing it. For a limited time only, you can get Honey Love on sale. Get 20% off your entire order with our exclusive link, honeylove.com slash historychicks. Support our show and check them out at honeylove.com forward slash historychicks. And I didn't know that, Beckett. I I didn't know. Here I am at my advanced age, and I was convinced that only an underwire was going to do the job. But I tried the Honey Love bra, and it does exactly the same thing, only so much more comfortable. By the end of the day, I don't even know I have it on. There's none of that tugging and pulling, and the crossover bra is just so comfortable. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. Treat yourself to the best bras on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com slash historychicks. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off at honeylove.com slash historychicks. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them that we sent you. Treat yourself to Honeylove because you deserve it.
Mariana had left Salzburg as a tween and was now a proper teenager. She was no longer really a child prodigy. She was still extremely talented. But as for touring and performing on stage, she was getting to an age where proper women of a certain class only perform privately. They perform for friends and families at parties and just for people that they knew, not publicly for money. And then that's what she started to do. And at this point, really, her brother's gifts were really exceeding hers because of his creative skills in composing and his showmanship. His gifts were apparent enough that the librarian at St. Peter's Abbey in Salzburg said that Wolfgang had, quote, the most beautiful inspirations. Even the most excellent organist wondered how it was humanly possible for a boy who was already so good an artist at the age of six to possess such an art as to astonish the whole musical world. What Wolfgang went on to do is well-documented and studied and dissected and covered by podcasts other than this one. And we'll direct you to some in the show notes. But focusing on Maria Anna, she would only have one more short tour in her future. When she was 17, family again went to Vienna and played at the court of Empress Maria Theresa. The emperor had passed away while the Mozarts were on their grand tour. But after that, at 18, when Leopold and Wolfgang, who was then 13, set off on a tour to the south towards Italy, they left Mama to teach Maria Anna domestic skills that she had been lacking for her entire life. And it was time for Maria Anna to just watch reports of and from her father and her brother. They were just like rubbing salt in the wounds. This one was from her father. I'm glad that neither of you undertook this journey with us. Yet I'm sorry that you're not seeing these Italian towns. So Papa is sending these letters talking about how great Wolfgang is doing and all these beautiful things that they're seeing and this adventure that they're on. And... You know, all that Maria Anna can do is just read it and wish she was there. At least her brother got her. I think they had a really beautiful relationship. And I know there's lots of talk how they later had a falling out. I don't, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but they really supported one another. They had the same life experiences, even though their ages were a little bit different. They had the same unique life experiences, living on the road as child prodigies, performing for people. And that brought them closer together. In one of the letters that Wolfgang wrote back to his sister, it was full of potty puns. This whole family has really, they talk about pooing in beds all the time in these letters. And it's funny. And it's the way the family talks. Like most families, they have their own language and their own inside jokes. Well, Wolfgang is also writing back some potty humor. But he wrote this in one of his emails. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, his text from the road. Something that kind of an inside conversation that they've always had. He wrote, I often set off my whistle, but not a soul answers me. So just like the language that I've been speaking my entire childhood isn't being heard by anybody. Whenever the male Mozarts did come back to Salzburg, Maria Anna and Wolfgang picked up their music right where they had left it. Increasingly, they're playing more of his work. And one time when he was playing in Munich, she was able to come, not to perform, but to watch him. But even doing that, she was so, so proud of him. 
And when she was at home, she would still practice her music hours a day. She's sitting at her harpsichord or piano and just playing just for the joy of it. Now, the money was getting kind of tight. So she also was starting to take in students, but she loves music. This is her life. So sharing it with somebody else seemed like a pretty natural progression. And just being able to help support the family in a way and doing something that you like rather than, let's say, laundry had to be rewarding and good for her. Was she writing her own music? Mm, Probably. Studies being done on some of Wolfgang's pieces, looking for her contributions. There's some that have been discovered that she had most likely written them. There's pieces written in her handwriting with his name on them. So obviously she was part of their creation, but just compositions in her name, there isn't. But this was in a letter from her brother, and it tells me that she was indeed not only composing, but sharing them in letters back to her brother. He said, I was really surprised that you could compose so beautifully. And in a word, the song is beautiful. Okay, that sounds like a composition to me. But money was tight. At this point, Wolfgang was trying to establish himself and be hired on as a court musician somewhere, preferably in Vienna. But the money wasn't coming in nearly as great as it did when they were child prodigies. So when Maria Anna was about 25 or 26... Papa had to stay behind, and Mama Anna Maria went with the then 21-year-old Wolfgang for yet another tour. About a year into this tour in Paris, 58-year-old Anna Maria Mozart developed some mysterious illness, possibly typhoid fever, and she died in Paris, and that's where she's buried. And now Wolfgang is alone on the road. He is in his early 20s. He's a grown man. He can travel on his own. But even though he's setting off to go play in other courts, (laughs) his father is micromanaging him through these letters. You know, don't talk to strangers. Watch your bags. If you get out of the coach, take your bag with you. Trust no one. That kind of thing. Things that maybe he should have picked up on his own while he was traveling. Maybe he did. I don't know, but Papa is definitely missing the power that he had. Leopold was the driving force behind Wolfgang. You know, he was the pushy parent that you see at those sporting events who wants his kid playing. Leopold fortunately had a kid who had a lot of talent to play, but that's what I just kept thinking of that over and over again of those parents. And now that Wolfgang is out on his own, it's just like when the kids get a scholarship to go to play college ball. Papa can't be there anymore, coaching from the sidelines. And I say Papa's, which is really sexist of me. I'm sure it happens to mothers. I just mm, (laughs) don't happen to know any mothers that work that way. Our Maria Anna's life, however, in Salzburg was set. She had been given the matriarchal family crown, and at 27, she was stuck. Now, what about marriage? I was surprised to find that the marriage rate in Salzburg was lower than I would have thought. Only 20 to 25 percent of people were married. So her not being married, considering their genteel poverty situation, that she wouldn't have had a lot to offer as a dowry. I can see where it wouldn't be eyebrow raising that she was still unmarried. There's one gentleman that's mentioned often in her diary and in letters from Wolfgang He was a former military captain turned academic tutor for wealthy kids. His name was Franz Armand de Polt. And there's one theory that Leopold didn't approve 
of the match because Franz didn't have the right credentials or the right amount of money or whatever. But there's no evidence of that. And it isn't a situation where they fell in love and one of them jilted the other one. He pops up a lot in correspondence and in her diary, but in more of a friend capacity. But still, her brother is writing her from the road. This is a letter he wrote to her. Now, here is Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who is going to go on to become this iconic musician. And he's writing letters to his sister that say things like, I should very much like to know how things are progressing between you and a certain friend. You know who I mean. Do write me about this. And he's writing letters also suggesting that she comes to Vienna and continues to play publicly. Now, why Maria Anna did not take him up on this offer, there were women of her social class that were beginning to appear on stages. So it wasn't a widely accepted opportunity, but it was an opportunity that was there and she didn't take it. There's no evidence as to why. So all there is is these theories. Did Leopold insist that Maria Anna stay at home in Salzburg, not appear on any stages, not write any music, just limited by societal conventions? Did she choose it herself? I don't know. I'm sorry. I wish I could give you this answer because it would reveal a lot. But we do know that she has followed a traditional path for a woman her, her age and of her class. But when Maria Anna was about 31, her brother married. He married a woman named Costanza. Now, in the movie Amadeus, there's so much. It's such a fun movie, but there's so much that was fictionalized. Accent on the fiction of historical fiction. So their marriage wasn't exactly like it's played out in that movie. But when Maria Anna herself was 33, she did finally get married. And class-wise and money-wise, she married up. The man was a bit older than her. She's 33. He's 48. His name was Johann Baptiste Franz von Berchtold de Sonnenberg. He's nobility and he's loaded. And he has had two previous wives, both of whom died in childbirth. The second one only about a year and a half before Mariana and Johann married. The children that they had had before they passed away, five of them survived infancy. So now Maria Anna is a stepmom to five fairly young children. So it was time for her to leave Salzburg and move into her husband's home. But in a situation that if it was in a book, you'd be thinking, "Uh, this is not quite believable, but it's what happened. She moved to St. Gilgen, which is where her mother had been born. Not only the village where her mother had been born, but the actual house. Because the government position that Maria Anna's grandfather held was the same position that her husband held now. So she is able to raise her stepchildren at this point and live in the house where her mother was born. Papa Leopold did give Maria Anna a piano as a wedding present, which she brought to her country house, but it didn't even really survive the first really damp, cold winter. Um, The instrument began to warp, although she kept playing it. So (laughs) must not have sounded great, especially to her ear, but she still could plunk out some tunes on it. The year after Maria Anna and Johann married, she traveled to Salzburg, which is a six-hour trip, to give birth to her first child, a boy that they named Leopold Alois Pantaleon Berchtold. 
Her husband didn't make the trip, uh, and Mariana recuperated afterwards at her father's house, and she stayed for about a month, but only she made the journey back to St. Gilgen. Her son stayed with Leopold. Now, why? Well, he was not a healthy infant. He needed big city doctors. Let's just put it that way. It's believed that she had planned to go and pick up her son and bring him back to her house with her stepchildren and her husband. But somehow, Leopold kept the child at his house. He is writing her letters, telling Maria Anna how wonderful little Leopold is and how he's walking and getting potty trained. Now, why? Mm, Don't know. Was it her husband who had no desire to have an infant join their family? Maybe, maybe not. Or was Leopold just extraordinarily manipulative and had this power over Maria Anna and had these great plans of mentoring yet another musical genius child prodigy in his grandson? Now, big Leopold does have help at his house, so he's not you know, raising this child on his own. He's the man of the house, (laughs) but there are servants that are taking care of it. And little Leopold stayed in Salzburg with his grandfather for about two years until grandpa himself died at the age of 67. And then little Leopold and his mother, Maria Anna, were able to be reunited. Unfortunately, the hits are going to keep coming. After Leopold's death, the relationship between brother and sister got strained. There were some discussions about family property that they couldn't agree on, but show me a brother and sister that agree on everything. I don't even agree with my brother on everything. And their reported split could have just been that their lives were separate and busy. And unfortunately, they didn't have time to connect again. It was only about three years later that Wolfgang, then only 35, died at his home in Vienna from, (laughs) that's a topic for musical historians. He was most likely not poisoned like in the movie by his musical nemesis, Antonio Salieri, although the actual cause of his death was unknown. And at the time, the new emperor was kind of cutting back economically and people, unless they were nobility, were buried in, not I want to say a mass grave, but there's more than one body in the hole. Unfortunately, where Wolfgang Mozart landed after his death is unknown. I know, isn't that sad? Maria Anna did give birth to two more children, two girls, Jeanette, which is curiously her husband's second wife's name. Okay, and a little baby called Marie Babette, who did die in infancy. Marie Anna stayed in St. Gilgen until her husband's death in 1801. At that point, she was 50, and she and her two remaining children moved back to Salzburg. Her daughter, unfortunately, did die at 16, about four years after Johann had passed away. So this is a time period where Maria Anna is just getting one hit after another. She was a very well-off woman with frugal taste. Uh, She did keep teaching the entire time, even as her eyesight, first one eye at the age of 69 and then the other at the age of 74, went. She also had limited ability on one side of her. In a way, playing without being able to see and with one hand was one of those exercises that her father had had her and Wolfgang do when they were children. 
So she's still able to create music, even though she has got a lot of limited abilities. Wolfgang's widow, who had remarried, moved to Salzburg, and she and her husband were writing a biography on Wolfgang. And Maria Anna gave them correspondence and shared memories with them. She was not an author of this first biography of her brother, but without her, the creation of it certainly couldn't have happened. On October 29th, 1829, Maria Anna died of old age. She was 78 years old. She's buried in the communal crypt at St. Peter's in Salzburg. Toward the end of her life, Maria Anna met her nephew, Wolfgang's son, Franz Xavier Wolfgang Mozart. He treated her so kindly as the aunt she was, even though he had never met her before. And during that visit, Wolfgang's son sat at the very piano where Maria Anna and Wolfgang had played. Franz Xavier was a very talented pianist. He traveled all over Europe playing in the same courts that his father and his aunt had played in. She told him that she just saw her brother in him and said, In my 70th year of life, I still enjoyed the inexpressible joy of seeing my unforgettable brother's son for the first time and hearing his father play just as he liked. As for media, books, there really isn't a whole lot of biographies on Mariana. The one I used the most heavily is Mozart's Women, His Family, His Friend, His Music by Jane Glover. I also perused Mozart's letters, which are published. There are two adorable children's books, one called I Am Mozart Two: The Lost Genius of Maria Anna Mozart by Audrey Aids, illustrated by Adelina Lirius, and For the Love of Music, The Remarkable Story of Maria Anna Mozart by Elizabeth Rush, illustrations by Steve Johnson and Lou Fancher. This book is really charming in that there's kind of a musical education. There's lots of beautiful pictures. It's definitely a picture book. It's a read and point kind of picture book. But there's a musical education as you read along, like what's a piano sonata? What's a first movement? What's a coda? What's a finale? Well, they're endings just like this. On YouTube, I'm going to link you up to some videos that so you can see the difference between a Viennese forte piano and a modern piano. Also, the same guy has a series, and he doesn't produce it anymore, called Classical Cake, where he pairs a baked good with a musical history lesson. And in this one, he had a nusa torta, which I'm going to try when we go to Vienna. Speaking of going to Vienna, if you are going to Vienna, the Mozart Museum is in Salzburg. There is an online tour, too, so I will link you up to that in the show notes. It's the home that the family had lived in for 27 years, although a portion of it had to be completely rebuilt after World War II. It was built to the original plans. It is a major attraction in Salzburg. And if you are one of the lucky people who are coming on our field trip to Salzburg, we are going there. We're going to be touring the museum and we're going to be um, listening to a concert of Mozart's music. And you can bet your booty I am going to be asking about his sister. This is pretty cool. Um, I'm going to link you up to this music. It's called Project Ms. Mozart. And a composer and pianist named Heloisa Fernandez took fragments of the letters of Maria Anna Mozart, broke them down into notes and rhythm and melody, and turned it into music. It's only about three minutes long. We'll put it in the show notes. There is no lyrics, but it's still her words. 
Very cool. Online, there is a Maria Anna Mozart Society, and it's really a collection of female composers. Now I'm going to turn it over to Beckett, who's going to talk about the life of Clara Schumann. And you can see the difference that just a few years of life makes between the lives of these two extraordinarily talented women. Bye. The History Chicks are going to be in St. Louis. We don't really do a lot of live shows, but we're going to be doing one on March 7th, that's a Thursday, at the Missouri History Museum. We often talk about the 1893 World's Fair. Oh, do we ever. It's actually (laughs) become part of our personalities, but... There was another World's Fair that happened just about a decade after our favorite, the St. Louis World's Fair, also called the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, the very fair made so famous in the Meet Me in St. Louis with Judy Garland. Thank you for putting that earworm in my head. I appreciate it. (laughs) This museum, every Thursday night, they have a special program, and this will be ours. It's from 5 till 8. We actually aren't on until 6.30, but they have so many activities beforehand that you're going to want to come early. Though we don't usually reveal our subjects, this time we're going to. We're going to be doing a talk on Jessie Tarbox Beals. She was a pioneer in the field of photojournalism and has deep ties to the Louisiana Purchase Exposition. If you would like to come meet us, please do. It is actually within driving distance of a lot more people than Paris is. So (laughs) we hope that you will come and see us. Admission is free and there's general seating. So either visit Missouri History Museum at mohistory.org or check out the link on the show notes for this episode. Let's talk about Clara Schumann. But first, let's place her in history. In 1830, Edwin Budding of England signed an agreement for the manufacture of his invention, the lawnmower. You can see the bones of a manual mower of today in his design, although the modern ones don't have nearly as much fabulous steampunkery about them. U.S. President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act, which gave the federal government the power to seize native-held lands and forcibly remove Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole west onto Indian territory that was located in present-day Oklahoma. Mary Had a Little Lamb by Sarah Josepha Hale is first published, possibly the first thing anyone ever learns to play on the piano. Born this year, American labor organizer Mother Jones, yes, really, she lived to 100, John Stetson, he of the famous hat, previous subject Belva Lockwood, and poet and previous subject, Emily Dickinson. Died this year, George IV of England, father of previous subject, Princess Charlotte of England, and South American military leader, Simone Bolivar. Also in 1830, 11-year-old child prodigy, Clara Wieck, went on the very first of a lifelong series of European tours, beginning a concert piano career that spanned six decades. Clara Josephine Wieck was born in Leipzig, Germany, on September 13, 1819, the second of the five children of Friedrich Wieck and Marianne Tromlitz Wieck. Papa was the son of a merchant who loved music but never had the chance to study it formally. While making his living as a private tutor, he taught himself theory, piano, and composition to the extent 
that, within a few years, he was a published composer. He set up shop as a piano teacher and owned a piano store. He also owned and operated a large lending library of music. Mama was a virtuoso pianist and a notable soprano and was one of Papa Friedrich's star pupils, the daughter of a composer and music teacher and the granddaughter of a master flautist. 30-year-old Papa and 19-year-old Mama were married, and Mama continued her career of performing. The house was filled with the sounds of both parents' students. Marianne, who was the superior musician, took the advanced students, and Papa taught the beginners. This scenario, by the way, is very familiar. Every Saturday, we had to keep the cartoons down low because there was a parade of young bassists traveling behind us. We sat so close to the TV, traveling behind us where we were eating our cereal and watching Scooby-Doo and reruns of the Jetsons. I assure you, I was not alive during the initial run. But unlike our house, which was busy and harmonious, the best adjective I could use for the Veek house was fraught. Papa was exacting and fractious, and Mama was busy and overwhelmed. She was trying to balance the house and the business and her husband with her performances, and her husband was a critical and angry man. Papa seems to have enjoyed the extra money and the, I don't know, glory, but he, I mean, he was a mean man. We'll we'll see the unhinged mess later. Clara grew up in this environment of shouting matches and tears and silent treatments, and as a result, she did not speak at all. Um, Witnesses to her childhood describe that she spent a lot of time in sort of a fugue state. She took great comfort from one calm constant in her life, her nurse, Johanna, who unfortunately, for the purposes of learning how to speak, was silent and stoic herself. Her parents actually wondered if maybe Clara was deaf, and the town decided to talk among themselves what a shame for such a musical family to have a child who cannot hear. The irony, the Mr. Holland's opuses of it all. But diagnosis from here seems to be trauma, um, withdrawal. Papa tested Clara by playing on the piano a phrase which Clara immediately copied. She imitated his mannerisms of performing also. She gave the full 360-degree performance. She had a quick mind for music. Interesting, thought Papa. Very interesting. As one of these men who had had his ambition squashed in his youth, he began to think of perhaps living vicariously through one of his children. When Clara was around four and a half, Mama had reached the end of her capabilities to live with this man at all. After seven years of marriage and five children, Mama took Clara and her newborn son and fled to her parents' house. It was extremely uncommon for couples to divorce during this time period. It caused an absolute scandal, most of which, of course, stuck to the woman. By law, all the children were the father's property. It was very likely for a divorced woman to never see her children again. Can you imagine the difficulty of that decision? That will tell you how much of a handful Papa was. Papa, quote, graciously let Mama keep Clara over the summer, but demanded her return on her fifth birthday. He did not come himself to fetch her, by the way, but dispassionately sent a servant to pick her up, and that whole event broke her mother's heart. Mama remarried 
to an old friend, a nice man, actually, with whom she had four more children. However, his work took Mama 100 miles from her first family, and they were geographically cut off. Marianne was called Clara's Berlin mother. She does come into the story later, never fear. And I'm also sorry to say that the baby she fled with died early, or Papa would probably have taken him also. Clara did begin to speak, much to everyone's relief. Maybe it was the general stress level decreasing around her fifth birthday. Papa thought that Clara was too attached to her nurse, Johanna, and fired her, which is something that would have shocked me more had I not read that book, The Nanny Diaries, if you remember that one, where it was common among the well-heeled mothers in this book to resent the child's attachment to the nanny, and so they made sure to rotate them regularly. That is so horrible. Papa saw in Clara a person who had inherited her mother's talent and a potential musical prodigy. His new ambition was that he was going to make his daughter Clara into a star. He took her education in hand. She began piano lessons with Papa. She was at her instrument three hours a day. The focus was not on reading music so much as feeling it. It must sing, Clara, sing with a human voice. The goal was not technical perfection, not yet, but pulling feelings out of the audience. And, you know, I have to tell you, this technique really informed her later style. And um, she began composing music almost immediately. The children, Clara, and her younger brothers, Alvin and Gustav, were educated at home by tutors. Her brothers likely had some additional lessons, but Clara studied reading, writing, English and French, violin, and musical composition. Papa believed that a healthy mind starts with a healthy body and started the day, stereotypically for a German, sorry, with a brisk three-hour hike. Everyone had to participate. I'm sorry to say that he was quite abusive to his sons. He was not above throwing them on the ground, etc. He kept everybody too busy to play or, or have friends. There was no time to daydream. Everyone sort of fell into bed exhausted. Clara was taken to see other musicians play as part of her education. Papa also hosted local and touring musicians in the house, and sometimes Clara would be brought out to play for the company. Other musicians encouraged him to set up some performances for her, and his general philosophy was, no, we are not producing a novelty act. I will not let her perform until she's actually good enough to perform. Papa remarried when Clara was eight, not another artist, a minister's daughter who, in his mind, could be counted on to obey him, unlike the other one who had passed on her, quote, silly, stupid nature to his daughter, Clara, from whom he was trying to stamp that all out. Clara never fully accepted her stepmother. There you go. The dynamic was changing in the house. Um, another new arrival when Clara was 11 was one of Papa's students, a young man of 20 who had come to board at their house so that Papa could turn him into a concert pianist. Robert Schumann was the youngest son of a large family who had spent his childhood immersed in music and literature, composing from an early age. His papa was actually very supportive, but after his father died, his practical mother convinced him to follow a different course and sent him to law school. But he never lost his love of music and finally convinced his mother to quit the law and try for a career as a concert pianist. After a reassuring volley of letters between concerned Mama and Mr. Veek, 
Lama allowed Robert to try to follow his dreams. Robert certainly brought a breath of fresh air into the house. He almost, I mean, he almost taught the Veek kids how to play because they'd never done it before. He taught them how to play tag and and hide and seek, and he taught them singing games. This whole grim family was so foreign to him. He was from a sort of rollicking family, and to come into this pinched up, violent house, he he was horrified by the physical abuse he saw his mentor rain down upon his poor little children and wrote back to his mother, am I among humans here? Papa Veek had long since given up on his sons, and he was putting all his time and energy into making Clara a concert pianist. Robert himself found young Clara a wonderful duet partner and also, um, I'm going to call her a creative accelerator. Do we have those friends, those friends who support you and also critique you? They're really good for you. They're really good for you. Well, Papa deemed Clara ready for public view when she was only 11. Now, she had appeared in a recital at nine, um, but it wasn't her concert and she only played one piece. This was going to be her own show. She gave a well-received and attended concert at the Gavant House, literally Cloth House, which was historically the home of the Cloth Merchant Guildhall, a fabulously ornate concert hall, was built in 1781, and 500 well-heeled guests could be accommodated here. It was the home of the renowned Leipzig Orchestra and the site of monumental firsts in the world of classical music. It was a place to debut your new work. Well, Papa's new work, i.e. Clara, also performed some of her own compositions during this first concert, and four of her compositions were published. She is a published composer at the age of 11. Papa is looking around, and he decides, okay, it's time to go public, real public. He orchestrates mm, an eight-month tour for Clara across Europe, ending at Paris, the fashion center of the world for the big finale. His wife, Clementine, is pregnant with her first child, but whatever, as far as he's concerned. Also, can you please run the business while I'm gone? And Robert, you have to find somewhere else to live. We can't have unmarried lodgers in this house. Uh, So much for Robert's career, I guess, despite all of Papa's promises. The first opportunity to get Clara on the road and Robert is booted. I think that begins the resentment. Papa, to give him credit, was an amazing organizer. He found and secured venues. He sold tickets. He was the hype man. He was the costume department. He had reserved a dress or two of finest silk for Clara to wear. He himself dressed in the height of fashion. Um, There was a lot of mention of yellow gloves. And if you look up yellow gloves, yes, there was a giant fashion for kid skin yellow gloves. Those made the man. Similar to the way that a lot of parents set out on road trips in the night so the kids will sleep in the back seat, he used the night for travel also instead of paying for lodging. He also, as his networking deepened in a place, was able to book private events in people's homes. No one had a radio, obviously, so live is the only music you're going to get. Grateful audiences would often pay Clara in jewels or gold, like take off a ring and give it to the little girl as a tip, which no-nonsense papa, of course, liquidated into cash immediately and put it in his own pocket. And the glorious end of the tour came into sight. Here we are in Paris. Connections and introductions from along the way led to more private events, Clara built up a buzz. I know this is self-serving and he didn't do it for her benefit. 
But Papa actually got her an intro to her musical hero, Frédéric Chopin. She, like a Taylor Swift fan, learned Chopin's works as fast as they came out. Stylistically, her compositions were in the same genre. I mean, for the next 55 years, she hardly did a show without a Chopin work. It was a big, 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 big deal to get to meet him. So Papa organized that, but probably for his own benefit. I'm glad that happened because... Unfortunately, the hoped-for pinnacle, the uh, cherry on top of this whole eight-month journey, was a bust. The wealthy audiences that were expected at Clara's public concert had fled the city ahead of a cholera epidemic. It was sad trombones all the way home. Clara, now 12, had a joyful reunion with her friend Robert, who was having some unfortunate challenges of his own for almost his whole performing career. He suffered from severe stage fright. It manifested itself in a strange way as paralysis on one hand, psychological or physical, who's to say, possibly, he made the situation worse by using one of these devices called a dactylion. It's hard to explain what they are. It's basically... Um, rings that you pull on a string to increase the strength in your fingers. They were commonly used, but the lore is that Robert Schumann used a homemade version that he had made out of a cigar box and caused permanent injury to his hand. Regardless of the cause or actual severity, this injury had the effect of shifting Robert Schumann's focus to other non-performance aspects of music in order to make a career. Composing, of course, including pieces that Clara would take care to include in her performances, but also with the help of Papa Vick, he became the publisher slash editor of an extremely influential weekly publication called The New Journal for Music. Robert was able to move the public taste toward the new artist of what would become the Romantic era, Chopin, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, and of course, Clara Vick who was giving concerts up and down the country and writing grand compositions of her own. Beginning at age 13, she wrote a piano concerto, which is a soloist plus full orchestra, and spent many hours with Robert Schumann, who was helping her with the arrangements, the, uh, the integration of the different instruments part into one full composition. Papa cast a suspicious eye on these arrangements. He was not at all down with the intention and friendship between his daughter and anyone, really. I mean, this is a man who wrote and commented in his daughter's diary for her education and his education on what was going on in her mind. He kept a close eye on her, always. Clara was his creation. Clara was his cash cow. Even though, as they were wrapping up the work on the symphony, she was only 15, in this day and age, well, that just could be marriageable age. And he was not about to have her potential career squandered by some dude. No. So, in hopes of stopping anything from starting, he sent Clara to Dresden to receive formal training in composition. 75 miles did its desired work. Also, the careful placing in Robert's way of a young lady student boarder that happened to be hosted in the house. And by the time Clara returned home a few months later, Robert and this Ernestine von Fricken were engaged. Frick. Frickin' Ernestine. It is really nice when someone that you have to regard as a temporary villain has a good name like that. They'll be friends later. Don't worry. Clara performed her concerto, piano concerto in A minor, opus 7, which she had completed 
and revised without Robert's help. Um, she performed the 20-minute work with Felix Mendelssohn as a conductor of the orchestra. He later wrote the Wedding March, maybe, if you aren't classic music scholars, like, la, 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 la. That's what happens when you start too low for your vocal range. Well, you get the gist. Felix Mendelssohn actually had a musical prodigy sister whose father did not support her performing. By the way, Fanny Mendelssohn, we will give you a link to her story as well. Back to Clara. When Clara was 16, evidently under cover of the good Miss Von Fricken's official claim, there was a secret and mutual declaration of love. Poor old Ernestine. Yes, heartbroken. She released Robert from his engagement and all was bliss for a matter of weeks before Papa found out and then the poop hit the air circulation machine. Papa told Robert in no uncertain terms that he would shoot him if he ever saw his face again. He demanded that Clara send all of Robert's letters back. All the musical world came to know the story. Some took Papa's side, some Robert's, but everyone seemed sympathetic to Clara. She was no longer allowed to perform Robert's pieces. Papa actually hired and bullied a guy into pretending to be Clara's suitor to drive a wedge between them and stop the tongues of the town. He's nothing if he's not thorough, Papa. After a year and a half, Clara insisted on playing one of Robert's pieces in public, and Papa allowed it. I think her will is growing. Robert wrote her immediately and proposed marriage, and she said yes. Clara was 17. Here's the problem. In that time and place, you couldn't get married without your parents' permission, no matter how old you were. Even though Clara had turned 18, it didn't matter. 18, 40, literally didn't matter. It was illegal to marry without your parents' permission. Well, Mama was fine with the whole thing, and the only parent left in the equation was Clara's papa, who, in no uncertain terms, forbade it. He chased Robert from his house for asking, even though Robert and Clara continued to consider themselves engaged anyway. And Papa took Clara off to conquer Vienna, and I do mean conquer. Clara was a storyteller with her performances. In her hands, the music painted pictures and caused the audience to weep or have their hearts beat faster with joy. She played with no music in front of her, which added to the impression that she was pulling these emotions out of, like, heaven or something. It was magical. She was, as far as I can tell, the first major performer to perform with no music in front of her and started a trend in that direction. Her concerts were sold out every night. There were ticket riots if people couldn't get a hold of one. People would crowd the streets outside the theater to try to catch a glimpse of her or maybe hear a little bit when the door opened. Shades of Taylor Swift again. Like Taylor Swift, Clara made sure to support her friends. She always included one or more of Robert's pieces in her repertoire, making him famous in Vienna as well. Clara Wieck was officially given the title of Royal and Imperial Virtuosa. Kammer Virtuosa is the name. It's not a Lifetime Achievement Award. It's more like the Hall of Fame um, given by the Emperor or Empress, depending who is in the big seat at the time. A dessert was even created in her honor, Torte a la Wieck. And I'm sorry to say the original recipe is lost. However, 
A food historian gave it a go, and based on recipes of the time, she recreated the dessert as best she could in 2019. It is citrus cakes and mousses and cream fillings and toppings. It's very frothy. It looks like the most ambitious showstopper you've ever seen from Great British Bake Off. It's spectacular. The honors kept coming, and so did the money, which of course, legally, was all papas. This was the cause of the antagonism. When, upon Clara's return home, Robert was in the air. Clara and Robert used subterfuge to meet in town. Friends would resend Robert's letters to Clara in new envelopes with their own handwriting. Willing carriers of messages appeared at the house, though, after a while, Papa had Clara searched if anybody he suspected of being Robert's friend had paid a call. Papa was increasingly agitated and paranoid, and when he caught them speaking, he freaked out. You are going on tour to Paris without me. It was a shocking thing to do, just to toss her into the world with no male escort. He hired a French woman to be her chaperone and spy and just pushed her out the door. Okay, go do it. See if you can do it without me. How about it? And of course, Clara was absolutely terrified at first. She would send letters to Robert, but of course, the further they got away, letters would take weeks to get to and fro. But eventually, starting small, she gained experience of playing and collecting her own pay. Not too much later into the trip, she met a wonderful young lady friend who wanted to take piano lessons from her and also agreed to accompany her to Paris. And she exchanged her chaperone for this companion, ultimately. Already, she's undermining Papa's intent. This is a bit of all right. I am now out on the town with someone my age who doesn't know my father and can't report back to him. Hooray! When she got to Paris, though, it was a little intimidating. She flailed a little, it must be said, and some of Papa's friends sort of encouraged her to go home. Like, have you learned your lesson yet? But she met up with an old friend, Emily List. Mila, they called her. So Mila's parents invited Clara and her friend Henriette to go ahead and move in with them. And now Clara had a supportive home base. She worked and she saw the sights and she met the famous people. She was out, she was about, and she was successful. Robert renewed his suit and he really, really wanted to make it official. And he was so frustrated that after all of Papa's behavior, Clara still had guilt and ties to her father. I mean, it's natural to be conflicted, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's not always as easy when you're in it as it is for us seeing it from the outside. And also to my mind, Robert was sending mixed messages. In his letters, he said things like, of course you'll continue your career, but you should take a year off to learn how to cook and tend to your husband. And also, if you can't manage it all, surely the role of a wife is above that of an artist. Mm. He said that among a lot of less fraught, way better sentiments, but really, it's not as cut and dried as, you know, one man, 100% bad. The other one is 100% good for you. You know, it was a lot for Clara to weigh in the balance. Ultimately, Clara decided that it was Robert that she wanted, and so Robert wrote again one last time to give Papa the chance to okay the marriage, 
and Papa was infuriated. He wrote to Paris to tell Clara, come home now, give up Robert or I will disown you and keep all of this money. He'd already thrown Clara's two younger brothers out. This is no idle threat. Robert and Clara responded with a lawsuit. They asked the court in Leipzig to give them permission to wed. Upon Clara's return, Papa would not let Clara in the house. He wouldn't let her pack anything at all or take anything out of the house. Clara had to travel to Berlin to throw herself on the mercy of her long-lost mama, who was very glad to have her. In fact, during this time, Robert was actually the one who was paying for mama's apartment. Clara's stepfather had died. Papa went ballistic. I think he went ballistic at the safe harbor that Clara unexpectedly found herself in. He was infuriated by the court notification and began a giant smear campaign against Clara and Robert, writing to musicians all over Europe to appear on his side in court, or at least could you write a scathing letter about Robert, which people didn't do because A, they liked Robert and liked Clara, and number two, Everyone's afraid to get on the bad side of a famous music journalist. Papa searched and found Clara's stash of Robert's letters, and he carefully took things out of context in the letters and barraged the court with those snippets. Complaints that Robert was a no-talent fool that would never be able to support a wife, even that no one had bothered to train Clara to cook or clean and she would be a useless wife for Robert. He wrote to venues where she was living in Berlin, halls, and also important people who hired for musical evenings and warned them that Clara was an immoral girl who would poison people's daughters with her presence and not to let her play their instruments because she would ruin them with her, I don't know, dirty devil hands. Obviously, I am paraphrasing, but he wouldn't let up. And on the day of the hearing, Papa had worked himself into such a frenzy, he was basically frothing at the mouth. No one came to support his side. The judge ruled in Robert and Clara's favor as far as being able to marry, but Papa kept the enormous fortune that Clara had earned uh, and cut her off. He was supposed to give her her piano as part of the settlement, and it was like a nightmare to get him to do it. He decided to wash his hands of Clara and began to train her half-sister, Marie, in the hopes that lightning would strike twice. Marie was perfectly good, but it really didn't strike twice. Clara had no money for a wedding dress even. She, she gave some lessons and concerts to raise the money to buy the clothes to get married in the week before her wedding. And Robert and Clara were finally married one day before Clara turned 21. As a little back at you, Robert Schumann countersued for slander and he won. And Papa ultimately had to pay them a significant sum of money. Well, at first, married life was a dream. The pressure was off. They took long walks. They played duets. They began a diary together. And I guess this woman is never going to have a journal of her own. They'd each have it for a week. And then it was the other person's turn. Uh, okay. Together, they composed music. And Robert sent it to a publisher under the authorship of, and I quote, Robert and Clara Schumann and did not disclose whose was whose. So everyone was sort of forced <laughs> to accept that all of it was good, regardless of their prejudice. Then we get into this period that frustrates me immensely. Frustrates me. I'm just telling you. Robert gets the creative fire and he starts composing heavily. I love it. Whatever. People will tell you this is his period of his greatest output. 
That's absolutely fine with me. You know, but they're both artists. They're both great artists. And Clara had been accustomed to keep up her skills by working on her piano five to six hours a day. But when Clara started practicing her art, her greatest talent, here Robert would come shrieking that he must have complete silence in order to work. And it devastated her. She wrote in the diary, not one hour for myself, if only I do not fall too far behind. It was like both of them expected her work to give way to his, and only she was sad about it. He thought once they were married, you know, a little drawing room playing for friends. That's perfectly fine. Isn't that enough? And no, it's not enough. And she was actually sold the bill of goods. This is just me talking. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. The complete silence thing and the not taking turns, it was crap. Well, after half a year at the Givand house, Clara was invited to perform at a massive charity event. One of Robert's pieces would be premiered also there. Clara was so terrified because she hadn't been able to practice, really. And what if people had forgotten her? She'd been gone for months. She came out on stage and for the first time she was performing as Clara Schumann. Much to her relief, she received tumultuous applause. The the clapping went on so long, Clara had to wait for minutes before she could play, smiling at the audience who were welcoming her back. Clara continued giving concerts for another six months or so when she was forced to stop to give birth to her first child, Marie. Clara knew she had to seize the momentum, though, if she was going to be able to keep performing or Robert was going to put her back in that box. I I really think that she knew she had to hurry. She went off on a four-month tour. You don't have to go with me, she said. (laughs) I've done this before, obviously. And he thought, no, actually, I do. I, I do have to go with you. That's my responsibility. And he hated to leave a sub in at the magazine. He hated to leave his daughter Marie. He was not comfortable with Clara's absolute insistence on the journey in the first place. On the way, this is kind of not good, on the way some nobles who had invited her to a reception for her and didn't invite Robert, which is weird. And also weird that she went, I guess. But that was the last straw for Robert. Uh, I'm going home, he said. So you have to go home also, which is shades of papa. She actually went ahead and crossed the ocean without him to go ahead and finish her tour dates. She dazzled audiences all over Denmark. She was back, baby, you know, making sure to perform Robert's pieces to spread his work far afield. Back home, Robert was creatively blocked. He was pacing. He was upset. He was worried about Clara and infuriated with Clara because Clara's papa was gleefully telling everyone that after only a year, look at the Schumanns. They were separated already. Papa is a dirtbag, I swear. So when Clara came home and witnessed the results of her tour, she thought, well, I better stay closer to home. She still wanted to keep performing, but she brought it all into a smaller radius. It filled her with joy and pride to do it, and she wasn't, in fact, going to give it up. Despite the birth of their second daughter, Elise, Clara kept up a vigorous but very local schedule of performances. Robert, actually during this time, had a copious outfit. Robert fell into a pattern about this time of a short burst of copious output, followed by a crashing depression. It was a pattern. It's almost like he had to let things pass through him. And then when they were gone, he had no more energy um, until the opportunity came 
for Clara to go on tour in Russia. It was a lucrative prospect. Also sort of a holy grail. You know, you've arrived when, you know, dot, 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 you go to Russia kind of trip. Robert was reluctant to go, but again, thought it was his duty to go. And also, you know, maybe he'd get new audiences for his work and inspiration for some new music, seeing some new vistas. Also, also, the family needed the money really badly. We probably know already how this is going to go. Clara had a great time. She reveled in speeding along, seeing the sunrise from a fast sleigh, you know, wrapped in heavy furs. It's always so nice to be in the cold under a heavy blanket. She's breathing the cold air. She loved it. She loved everything about it. Russia loved Clara. She could hold a whole concert hall as a solo performer. She also gave private concerts for the nobility all the way up to Tsar Nicholas I and Tsarina Alexandra themselves. She loved it. She loved the glitz, the glamour, the novelty, also the money. Now, $6,000 by all accounts, which mm, hard to decide. Do we get excited about this? Well, I had to go down rabbit hole and the best I can tell, and this is a wide range, but it's between $82,000 and $110,000 in today's money. So yes, Yes, we do get excited. This was worth doing. Well, Robert did not, however, make it through okay. He was very homesick. He was very physically sick and extremely depressed. He got into such a state that he couldn't function at all. And on their return, he actually sold his music journal because he didn't feel like he could keep up with it. He also had a complete breakdown and had to leave his teaching post at the Leipzig Conservatory he cried all the time. He couldn't sleep. He screamed that there were demons in the house. He he would hold his head and stagger around. It was frightening, frightening. And come to find out, that actually ran in his family. One of his sisters had actually died by suicide after a behavior like this. It was very, very scary. Clara decided that what they needed to do was move. They needed a change of scenery and they needed a place where, you know, where everybody didn't know your name. They moved to Dresden, which had a reputation of not being exactly sophisticated. As to audience, they were um, perhaps a little rustic and maybe not as many eyeballs would be on them at all times. I will say that during this period, though Clara did give local or at least local-ish concerts and gave some private lessons, most of her time during this period was sort of compressed and family-focused. I mean, she had three more children, Julie, Emil, and Ludwig. I'm sorry to say we lost Emil at about a year old, but Clara did write one major work here in Dresden, Piano Trio in G minor, Opus 17, which I will put at the end of the show. But it was Robert whose output here was of lasting consequence. I just sort of hate that it was only when Clara 100% handled everything at home that he felt like he could work. I know, modern lens alerts. It, It is what it is. A rebellion broke out in Dresden about four and a half years after the um, Schumanns arrived. I'm not going to go into the details. It's basically, are we staying a small principality, that's the conservatives, or are we joining a federalized Germany, which is the rebels, I guess. There was bloody fighting right outside the house. There were dead combatants in the streets. Clara and Robert were on the side of a federalized Germany, but... When the rebels were conscripting all the able-bodied men, 
I mean, they went door to door knocking and pulling men and teenage boys out of the house. Robert hid at Clara's insistence and Clara kind of diverted them. Oh, he's not home. He's gone to this town to do this, blah, blah, blah. And Clara made a plan to get Robert out of town. She's seven months pregnant at the time, by the way. This involved uh, her plan splitting up the family, um, smuggling Robert out to another town by train. And then Clara walked up to eight miles back through fields, through mercenary soldiers who you're not going to be sure they're not going to attack you. Well, anyway, she came back to rescue the children who had had to stay behind with the servants. And meanwhile, all this adventure was going on. Robert holed up in his study in the new place. La, 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 la. I'm not sure he 100% understood everything that had even happened. But Clara had saved him from having to fight in the battle. Well, the city of Dusseldorf offered Robert the position of music director of the orchestra, and he did not want to take the job. He wanted to keep composing, but it was a better city for their careers, and it was a higher status position. It was worth taking. And so the Schumanns moved into a house that was carefully chosen so that Clara's work could happen at the same time as Robert's at last, and Clara gave birth to their seventh child, Eugenie. So something's going okay. (laughs) Something's going okay. That's all I'm saying. Dusseldorf loved Clara, and also it was a coup to get such a famous composer, Robert Schumann, to live in their city. And Robert, I'm sorry to say, did a very poor job at conducting the orchestra. He didn't have a powerful enough personality. He did not think, you know, multi-track enough. He couldn't think far enough ahead. He didn't command respect. He kept dropping his baton. Clara tried to help and he resented it greatly. She at one point had to take charge of rehearsals and he freaked out. He actually replaced her in concerts with a man and insulted her performances when she did play. You played terribly. I was embarrassed to hear you. He blamed her for the poor performances of the entire orchestra. It was bad tension in the house. And Clara was about to peace out to go on tour to England just to get away when she discovered she was expecting again and was bitterly disappointed that she was trapped in this tense, antagonistic situation. In came sort of a ray of sunshine right when they needed it the most. A friend of a friend sent 20-year-old Johannes Brahms to the Schumann house with a portfolio of his music and a dream. Clara and Robert were blown away. Blown away when they heard it. Spectacular music in a style entirely new. Two famous people, the Schumanns, took this newcomer under their wing. They met every day for a month, inspiring and admiring each other. And Robert got his own publisher to publish Brahms's work. On his recommendation, he came out of retirement and wrote an article for his old magazine about this new discovery. What a lovely interlude this was. Non-classical fans would know Brahms by the lullaby, which, because of licensing, I'm going to have to have you Google. After Brahms moved on, though, Robert was fired from his job. It was almost inevitable as conductor, and he began to spiral downward. He can't sleep. His head's full of music or buzzing, alternately. Devils were calling him. Angels were calling him. The family woke to his screams, and in a lucid moment, Robert came to Clara and said he had to take himself to the insane asylum. He was getting to the point where his conscious mind was not in charge. He was afraid he'd hurt Clara or the children and not mean to. And the next morning, he left the house in a rainstorm, only wearing his night clothes, went to the middle of a bridge, 
threw his wedding ring into the water and jumped in after it. Some fishermen pulled him into their boats, but he fought them the whole time and tried to jump back in. They had to kind of potato sack him back home through the streets. And everyone saw, everyone saw. Clara's mama came to take charge of the household and Clara was just distraught. What was even happening to the love of her life? You know, the doctors forbade her from seeing him. They thought that it was bad for both of them. He, she caused extreme reactions in him and his behavior upset her. And so the doctors sent her to a friend's house so she wouldn't see him being taken away to the asylum. In the asylum, Robert didn't ask about her or seem to remember that he even had a wife or children for a long, long time. Plenty of friends rallied around Clara and wanted to hold charity concerts for her and for the benefit of the children. And she just, she thanked them and she said, I wish that you would let me play them myself. That would make me feel better. What she needed instead of charity concerts was a strong, steady hand at home in order to accomplish this. She gave birth to their eighth child, Felix, right at this period. There was, it was a lot. Well, enter Johannes Brahms again. He rented a room in the same house as the Schumanns, and for two years, Brahms did all the household accounts. He supervised the children's educations. He gave the piano lessons himself, of course. He was really good. He was a nice man, too. Didn't yell like the children's grandpa would have. He even stayed as sort of a proxy head of the house. Every time Clara went on tours, she finally got to England at last, the first of a couple of decades worth of performances in England. And they were, you know, collaborative engines for each other, definitely musical soulmates. Was there more to this? However, um, Brahms once wrote to a friend, and I quote, I believe that I love her and find love in her. I often have to restrain myself forcibly from just quietly putting my arms around her and even, and it was dot, dot, dot. We know what that means because we've all seen Mamma Mia. I don't know. It seems to me so natural that she could not misunderstand me. And then Clara once wrote, There is the most complete accord between us. It is not his youth that attracts me, but the fresh mind, the gloriously gifted nature, the noble heart that I love in him. It's a testament to how discreet they were that no one knows, even now, for sure, what their relationship was. Toward the end of a two-year stay in the asylum, the doctors wrote to Clara, warning her that the end for Robert was near, and she was able to see him before he passed away on July 29th, 1856. From what the doctors said was a progressive paralysis brought on by overwork and exhaustion or else melancholia. Diagnosticians from these days say that it was likely bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Some have even gone so far as to say he was suffering from tertiary syphilis. I, I can't examine him, and I'm not a medical doctor, nor do I play one on TV, so I'm going to leave all those diagnoses there for you to think about. But he was only 46, regardless of how he died. 37-year-old Clara was, of course, bereft, but almost grateful at the end of Robert's suffering because it had been extreme. Afterward, Brahms, Clara, and a few family members went on a month-long trip to Switzerland. Much must have been hashed out, it seems. Um, there's some thought among historians that there might have been a plan to marry eventually. 
But after this journey, Brahms and Clara went their separate ways. Clara told her daughter Marie, and I quote, I feel as though I just left a funeral. From now on, they referred to each other as best friends. He never married. She never remarried. Clara had seven children to provide for, and so most of her time was spent touring to great acclaim. As a matter of fact, Clara promoted several of Brahms' pieces the way she used to do with Robert's new work. She traveled all over Europe from private events to public symphony concerts in grand halls for up to 10 months a year, keeping in touch with most of her children through extensive correspondence only. The oldest daughter, Marie, often acted as her assistant on these tours. And simultaneously, with a generous leave policy, she was hired as the very first woman on the faculty of a conservatory in Frankfurt. She taught the piano for, uh, at the advanced level, and then she hired her daughter Marie and daughter Eugenie to teach the beginners. This institution, the Hoke Conservatory, once put on a surprise concert to celebrate Clara's 50 years as a concert pianist. Friends from near and far came to play her music for her in tribute at the concert. Also, her old stomping grounds, the Gavant House, scheduled Clara herself on her 50th anniversary, and she played the work of Robert Schumann after she had to wade through the sheer volume of bouquets that had been tossed on the stage at her appearance. She got a standing ovation and 10 minutes of clapping before she had even played one note. This joy was repeated 10 years later on her 60th anniversary, tributes to her long career and her influence. Her students went on to great acclaim. Um, There are 62 of her students who had notable musical careers, you know, and and an infinite number that she enriched by, by her teaching. Anyway, tributes poured in from all over the world at the ripples that she had made in the musical world. Clara played her very last concert in Frankfurt, Germany at the age of 71. The very last piece she ever played in concert was Brahms's Variations on a Theme by Haydn, but she continued to teach for another five years until March 1896 when she suffered a stroke from which she never recovered. Clara Schumann died on May 20th, 1896, listening to Robert's music being played by one of her grandsons in the next room. She was 76. Clara is buried in Bonn, Germany, under an absolutely beautiful memorial on which is written, for the great sound poet erected by his friends and admirers. Oh, and down below, it says, his wife, Clara Schumann. Hmm. I'll give you a picture of this monument. We should all pretend that this statue of a woman on this monument that is regarding Robert's face up above, we can pretend it's Clara, but it is probably Euterpe, the muse of music and lyric poetry, if we're being realistic. And that's a bummer. Well, Clara Schumann was a daughter, a mother, a wife, a collaborator, a composer, and teacher, but she gained worldwide fame by playing the piano in a style entirely new evoking emotions in her audience with her extraordinary ability to tell a story with her music. We just wanted to call attention to her life and her decades of work. And in closing, let me leave you with a quote from Clara herself. Art is a beautiful gift. What indeed is more beautiful than to clothe one's feelings in sound? What a comfort in sad hours. What a pleasure. 
What a wonderful feeling to provide an hour of happiness to others. Thanks for listening. And this is the part where I say bye. And Becca says, if you like what you heard today, please tell a friend or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or however you're listening to this podcast. There are still a few spots left for our field trip to Paris in October of this year. So now all three of our trips for this year have been announced. Austria in June is already sold out. Paris in October is almost sold out. And we just announced New York City in September. For information for all of these and to register, visit Like Minds Travel. The end music today is a movement from Clara Schumann's piano trio in G minor, Opus 17. See you next time. Thank you.